I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. My name is Carrie Barrett, and I'm the longtime producer of the Purple Patch Podcast with Matt. And last month, our first Ask Matt Anything episode of the season went so well that our voicemail was filled with performance questions. So as promised, we're back with another special Ask Matt Anything. And this one is meaty. I have mined several of the questions that we received, and and this week we've got a wonderful variety of questions related to training and performance, which is timely since many of us are in the throes of dusting the rust off and charging into race season. So you're going to hear questions on the merits of bike commuting, which many of us do. You are going to hear questions on getting ready for a wetsuit legal swim when you don't have access to open water. We take a deep dive into the secret sauce of Purple Patch, which is our end of range bike training and where you should be when you do a race. There's valuable insight on our slogan, evolve or die, and how that phrase has impacted former training plans that Matt wrote in his previous books and Matt gives his in-depth views on stress, which, hint, stress isn't always a bad thing. These are great questions, and if you'd like to be a part of the next Ask Matt Anything, just go to the podcast page at purplepatchfitness.com, click on the Ask Matt Anything microphone in the top right-hand corner, tell us where you're from, and leave your voicemail. Okay. It's a beefy one today, so let's get right into the meat and... Kerry, let me just interrupt here before we get going into the questions. I know that you're keen. There's a couple of things I do want to say to the listeners that I think are really important. So it's not like me to have too much to say, is it? I'm I'm afraid it is. But here we go. Let, Let me just say this quickly before we get going with the show again. First, for you guys that are listening the day of release of this podcast. It's very last minute, but for the first time in the history of the sport, the Ironman World Championships have been held outside of Hawaii. They're actually going to be held in St. George, Utah in May. And it's a really challenging course. It's going to be a fantastic race. It's actually on a course that no one has raced before, even though the setting is there. There's no intel on sort of how to crack Kona, something that really resonates with folks that have done that, that actual race there in the Hawaii Ironman in Kona before. Now, the good news is that I happen to know St. George as a town really, really well. The environment, the terrain, the challenge, what the course begins. We've got multiple professional and amateur winners from the regular Ironman and the regular Ironman 70.3 at this location. And I wanted to help. And so we are doing a special PDF pre-race course overview, and you'll be able to download that. Lots of information, lots of insights. That's coming really soon. But we also have a really special offer for a few participating athletes. And so this is a quick one. It's happening tonight, if you're listening to this episode, right when it's released. And I'm being joined. I asked Scott Tyndall from Fuel In, absolute world-class nutritionist, to come and join me. And he graciously agreed. This is an exclusive roundtable discussion. 
It's a consultation to help you set up your strategy for the race, all of the tactics, how best to deploy your fitness to this course, what are the best approaches. Now, this is not a webinar. This is about you and your performance. It is going to be limited to just a few participants. We can take no more than five athletes. Okay. Now, tonight, it's April the 13th, 5 p.m. Pacific, and it's going to be 90 minutes in duration. And we have two more spots. So if you want to be a latecomer, come and register. We can put it in. All right, there it is, D-U-N. The one other thing I want to say today is what else is happening. So there's a couple of things that are really important. I want you to listen to one of the questions that we have in today's show, which is around stress. There is a really, really common trait of people feeling overwhelmed right now. A lot of leaders, a lot of employees, a lot of parents, a lot of athletes. And I think a big part of it is that we are navigating not just a whole bunch of stuff that's happening in the world, war, inflation, gas prices, etc., but also going through a period of change, a sort of return to a new normal. And it's really destabilizing. Change is very, very hard. And so a lot of folks are really struggling. So I want to just bubble that question up because one of the things that we are going to do next week is focus the whole show on stress. And I think it's one of those landmark episodes. So as you listen today, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of great questions in today's show. I want you to bubble up and say next week, do not miss it. And in addition to that, I'm actually building a really important blog that's also anchored around the subject. Now, the podcast and the blog are going to feel pretty different but it's all around the same theme. And the goal is to help educate you on a really positive relationship with strain, demands, challenge, adversity, what we could bucket under, or oh, I'd feel too stressed. Okay. So I wanted to just bubble that up. You can get very excited for next week. Lastly, what's going on around the world. I also want to bubble up a blog for this week that we wrote. It's at purplepatchfitness.com. You can head there and it's for the triathletes. It's all about running off the bike. So if you're a triathlete who's looking to optimize your run performance and you want to do so off the bike as the race demands, I go deep in this blog and I provide my perspective on the best approach so that you don't just survive, but ultimately thrive in the run, no matter what level you are. We see so many athletes struggle on this discipline, much of what has because of what has occurred before, but also because of their approach to training. And so it doesn't have to be like this. And so if you are a triathlete and you're interested, head to purplepatchfitness.com, go to the website, it's under the education tab, it's free. And of course, you are absolutely able and free. And in fact, we would thank you if you share it, either on people that would benefit from it, or of course, on your socials, because I do know that you do love your socials, don't you? Okay, under that banner, we love to deliver free education to you. And so it's the time of the show that we need to take a little bit of a breather and thank our sponsor, because it is our sponsor and partner, Inside Tracker, that makes this all possible. But the good news is that our partner is a company that actually can help you, help you thrive in your performance. And so I want to give a little perspective around Inside Tracker. To do this, let's go back to last week's podcast, which was an absolute cracker. Now, we've got part two of that coming in a couple of weeks, but we had nutritionist Kyla Chanel of Nutritional Revolution and Stevie Smith, one of the lead nutritionists for Inside Tracker. And one of the aspects of the conversation that bubbled up so clearly in the show was that knowledge is power. 
but especially knowledge specific to you. And guess what? Inside Tracker delivers that knowledge. It's a deep dive to your current biomarker profile so that the team at Inside Tracker can deliver some personalized peer-reviewed recommendations on what your focus should be. Your focus around nutrition, recovery, your training, and more. Now, I recommend the ultimate package. I think that gives the most comprehensive profile. But you can amplify your results as well. One of the recommendations I have is to go and get Inside Tracker, but then really double it up with a consultation. And you can have that with either myself, one of the team from Fuelin, which I think are also super, Kyla as well. All of these are available on the website, or of course, one of the Purple Patch coaching team. So right now you can take advantage with a special promotion, 20% off everything at the Inside Tracker store. All you need to do, head to the special URL, insidetracker.com slash purple patch, insidetracker.com slash purple patch, and put in this code, purple patch pro 20, purple patch pro 20. Now, if you'd like to add a consult, I think that probably the best way to do that is actually reach out to us directly because we'll guide you on who is best suited to help you with your specific needs, depending on your situation. So just simply reach out to info at purplepatchfitness.com with an email. We'll give you the price breakdown, how it works, etc. But that's a really great way to amplify. Okay, so Kerry, I'm sorry for hijacking the show. It's time for the questions for the British listeners. I feel like I'm sitting here with a heavy sweat in the spotlight on that black chair. Ladies and gentlemen, mastermind. Okay, it's time for the meat and potatoes. Back to you, Kerry. All right, Matt. Thank you so much for doing all of the promo-y stuff. Let's get right into it. And we'll kick this episode off with a question from Mark in Alberta, Canada, who is trying to prep for a wetsuit legal swim without access to open water. Let's hear from Mark. Hi, this is Mark from Alberta, Canada. I'm looking for your suggestions on how to get ready for a wetsuit legal swim of an early Ironman event where I'm unable to get into the open water prior to the race in my own hometown. Would it be using the wetsuit in the pool for shorter swims two or three times or otherwise? Appreciate your help. All right, Mark. Thank you. Great question. Uh, very, very common, by the way. A lot of people, folks that do not have access to open water swimming prior to their own race. And uh, by the way, it's a good race up there at your hometown. So there's three main things that I think that we can integrate or think about when we go about this. The first is trying to simulate your body position. The second is to upskill a little bit, and I'll dive into that in this uh, answer. And then the third is a little bit of simulation. Okay, so those are the three areas that I think I can help with, at least over the course of this show. So the first is body position. Your natural body position and most adult onset swimmers tend to have legs lower than shoulders. So a little bit of goodness me, I feel like I've got an anchor when I'm swimming. And a wetsuit really helps with that. When you get to wear a wetsuit, it brings the legs up into a more buoyant position. But it also changes your proprioceptive feedback. So I actually think it's quite healthy when you're in a swimming pool to actually leverage the use of, not the whole time, but pretty consistency, the, consistently the use of a buoy or a buoy, if you're English, or sim shorts, some of the rubber uh, neoprene shorts that actually create a little bit of lift. And a lot of folks see that as a crutch, as cheating. But the truth is that what it's doing is it's putting 
your body into the similar position that you will have when you're in open water swimming. And that helps you with feeling, making sure you're maximizing propulsion. It also gives you, by the way, a little bit of patience before you have to pull. A lot of people start the pull too early because they feel like their body position is sinking. So in other words, you can get a more effective workout from it. So if you're really excellent at swimming, you have a rich swimming background, my background is swimming, I tend to not do that too much. And in fact, I try and minimize, or at least I used to back in the days when I raced, I try and minimize the buoyancy of my wetsuit by chopping off the legs a little bit because it put me in an unnatural position. But I'm on the outlier of that. The vast majority of triathletes benefit from leveraging the buoy or some buoyant shorts, for lack of a better phrase. So that's the sort of body position side of stuff. Now let's talk about upskilling. This is really important. No matter what your trained potential is, so far as fitness, etc., your ultimate success of open water swimming for the vast majority of athletes is swimming in a straight line. So not, not lengthening the course because you're zigzagging across from Egypt to Alaska, etc. And so navigation and sighting is really important. The best way to improve that is by doing open water swimming, but you don't have access. And so the one thing that you can create as a habit is the technique of sighting without interrupting your rhythm and flow of your swim stroke. And so that becomes really important. So in a lot of your swimming in the weeks leading up, you should be doing, and let's make it up, you're going 15 times 100 at X certain effort. Do it where you sight three to four times every single lap. Now, at the start, that's going to slow you down. But your goal over many weeks is to start to narrow the delta between non-sighting swimming and swimming where you're adding sighting in. And you can only do that by improving your technique. Now, that does two things. Number one, it gets you ready from a postural fitness standpoint, your neck and shoulders not getting fatigued. But secondly, you start to work out how to do it. And so that becomes really important and really helpful. How do you cite properly? Well, we have a video on how to do it. I can add that into the show notes. But to do it <laughs> over the course of voice to ear, which isn't obviously optimal, there's a couple of components. The first is when your hand enters the water, if you are going to cite with the hand out front, you will first press that hand down. So if you're a breather that breathes to the right, as your hand right hand enters, you will press that hand down and that creates lift. And the first action you do as that hand is pressing down is to lift your eyes. Similar to what you might think about as you see a crocodile. You don't need to lift with your chin out of the water, just your eyes. And that is where, and the eye is an amazing thing, you don't have to actually see everything. It's almost like taking a picture, boom, and information transfers to your mind, so you lift, and as a part of the same motion then, you rotate your ear, which would be your left ear because you're breathing to your right, across to the right side, and you integrate it into your breathing. That's the best way to do it where you can integrate it into the rhythm of your stroke. Many, many people take a breath and then rotate their neck and breathe, and that just brings them to a thundering stop. So if that's confusing, I know that's very challenging over the course of a podcast format, but we'll add the video to the show notes. Get that dialed in. That's really, really helpful. 
The final component is simulation. So how do you actually mimic and start to train yourself for the experience that you're going to have on race day? Well, even if you start with the new rolling starts and it's a more controlled pace, there is still high stress, high anxiety, and a lot of collision in the early part of the swim. So you want to get familiar with that pain. We like to do a lot of sets or a lot of sessions where we do harder swimming up front, a series of very fast 50s, of which then you go into a controlled, steady state race effort. So it might be something like 450s very fast into a 400 consistent effort at more of an 80% effort, steady state. And that's going to become really familiar. If you really want to get uh, special and fancy, we do a lot of deck ups. And what that is, very, very painful stuff, using our random case study, 450s, all hard, but each of them at the end of each 50, you hop out of the pool and stand up. That creates this terribly claustrophobic feeling, heart rate spikes. And then after each four of those 50s, you go into race effort and you get familiar with the pain and able to retain good rhythm, nice and controlled while under that duress. Really, really important. So you can go through multiple rounds and go from there. And then finally, if you're really lucky and you're swimming a pool with friends, you can, of course, practice some drafting, sitting on their hips, sitting on their feet, doing continuous swims, etc. That's really helpful. So there is, for lack of a better phrase, a whole bunch that you can do when it comes to simulating open water experience with the swimming pool. I hope that helps. Thanks, Matt. Next up is Frank, who has a fascinating question about the phrase evolve or die and how that applies to some of the older training plans that Matt has in his last book. Hey, Matt. My name is Frank. I'm currently living in Kenya, uh, but from the States. And I'm more of a DIY kind of person, following your book quite a bit. Um, Enjoy the training plans and things like that. And I'm wondering, like with your statement, evolve or die, over the last few years, I've, there's probably been a lot of changes to your own programs. How has the book changed for those of us who are following the book? Thanks so much. Take care. Well, Frank, that's a great one. Thank you for the question. And I'm glad that you enjoyed the book or enjoying the book and finding it useful. So to answer your question, let me, let me say this. I think at the very core of the book, every single foundational principle in it remains exactly the same. And so that book was written to help time-starved athletes integrate training into their life so that they not only achieve the results that they want to achieve in their sport, et cetera, et cetera, but also can improve their health, improve their performance in the workplace and show up for their friends and family as best as they can. So it's sort of in many ways quite a noble mission of really why I wrote the book in the first place. And I've got to be honest, I wrote the book because I saw so much underperformance, so much frustration, so many people walking around fit and fatigued, and I wanted to write that wrong. And there is such a pervasive mindset in the endurance sports world, which is leaving people really strained, really frustrating, really tired, where they are highly committed They've got great ambition 
and yet they're not getting the results that their hard work really yields. And so the mission behind it is exactly the same. The methodology really at a, a fundamental, more global level hasn't evolved either. It's still based around exactly the same thing, which is giving you the toolbox and the mindset so that you don't dump training on top of life, but you integrate it into life so that it works together, so that they are actually two pieces that weave together to create the best solution. And to do that, I still absolutely believe that the only way that folks accelerate, improve, thrive is when they have a broad perspective, thinking about integrated endurance training that is supported with strength, a strong backbone of habits around nutrition and all with adequate recovery. That's really, really important. And so it's a really good resource if that mindset resonates with you and you are time starved, et cetera. Your question was, well, okay, what's evolved? If I hadn't over the last five plus years, six or seven years since writing that book, if I hadn't evolved and some things hadn't moved on, and then I would be wilting. There is a purple patch saying evolve or die. So at the baseline level, it's all very much the same. But if you look at the programming, the education, and the way we talk about things, it has evolved. It has moved on. Some of the more specific stuff, we have completely evolved our strength and conditioning. I think that we're much smarter. A couple of great assets came onto the Purple Patch team that are much, much smarter than me around strength and conditioning. They came on and supplied a great professional insight into what it means to integrate strength and conditioning for an endurance athlete with core stability, the progression over the year, the mobility. And it truly is a living, breathing part of Purple Patch programming. So I, I think that that's obviously evolved. And obviously our ability and program to deliver that, particularly via video sessions, is vastly different than being able to do it just on the, um, the pages of a book. The second component is the builds itself. I think that the any time that you just write a 10 or 14 week plan where it comes to get ready for a 70.3, get ready for an Ironman, it's always somewhat limited. And having the perspective of actually how you build people into a race, that's always evolving. So some of the ways that we build the plan has changed a little bit. It's a little bit more dynamic. I would say globally, we tend to stray more towards higher frequency running right now and a higher percentage of that running being low stress. We've really amplified the intensity and strength endurance component of biking. And even the way that we integrate some of our swim sessions has evolved. Finally, the huge shift, which is a huge shift in the broader world of nutrition globally, has been around uh, nutrition and fueling. I think that what we knew then when we wrote the book, to be honest, the paradigm has shifted and it's very, very different. And that's why we've done a lot of education on that. We've had uh, many guests on the podcast. We just did the webinar with Andy Blow from Precision Fuel and Hydration. Our partnership with Fuel In that's been really, really successful and empowering for athletes. It's very different from the book. So those are the big sort of shifts that have occurred. I would say that one of the things that we've got smarter and smarter about is management. 
So actually managing the tools of training load, the habits, how they integrate, how to hit sporting goals, but also amplify life. I just think that we've got a little bit smarter about that. Conceptually, everything I think was rich in the book, but how we actually apply it and talk about it and help athletes integrate it. We've just got better at that over the years. The expertise has improved on that side of stuff. Now, one thing I will add is that the majority of folks that join Purple Patch, and, and particularly our squad, I would say, the majority either have listened to this podcast, this show, really frequently, or, of course, have read the book. And many of the folks that read the book, of course, follow the plans in the book as well. And then they decide to take the next step. And I'd say almost 100% of people realize once they come inside the uh, the sort of gated walls in a way and join the squad, they realize that the support, the education, the evolution of the training approach is genuinely a change gamer, uh, a change gamer, a game changer, I'm sorry. And even those folks who tend to be a bit more of a lone wolf as they come to training, which there's nothing wrong with it. And I think that's for multiple reasons. The first is the evolution of some of the sessions and the methodology. But I think more than that, it's the living, breathing aspect. It's the support, the education of how to actually apply the plan, execute as intended, and then manage the plan and make smart decisions when life happens. And so we really help, I think, athletes get their head out of the room, learn from others, even if you're a bit more of a lone wolf and it's more voyeur in style, and really understand how to make smart decisions. And that's what creates great performance. So short answer, I'm really proud of the book, but I will say the digital experience is just a game changer and really, really different. And I think it brings the book to life. And that's our big passion is to try and really elevate remote coaching because it really is a different beast. Something certainly, Frank, to consider. Up next, we have a timely question from Victoria on the implications of overwhelm and stress. Hey, Matt. Uh, my name is Victoria, and I am based in New York City. I'm wondering if you have any advice. Uh, I began this year full of a lot of hope and ambition with some really lofty goals, including my first half Ironman. But since then, it feels like life has been one constant battle after another. I now must return to working from my office, which does include the addition of my commute again, and my kids' activities at school are just coming back with a vengeance. I hate to say it, but I feel like my available time has suddenly compressed. Not to mention layering on the world events, it's all just really zapped my consistency and my motivation. I just feel blah and overwhelmed with all the stress of life. Do you have any advice on how I can get back on track? All right, buckle up, guys. So this one is a really important question. It is incredibly timely. And one of the things that we are consistently hearing over the last few months is, I can't cope. I'm overstressed. I'm lost. And folks are either burying their head in the sand or just saying, I, I just can't do it anymore. Give me some space. I'm going to quit my training at the start of the year. I wanted to do X, Y, and Z, but I, I just need... I don't have capacity. I've, I've, I've got to go and focus on whatever it is, kids, work, travel, etc. Life is getting on top of a lot of people. 
And so the first thing I'll say is there are a lot of folks that feel just like you. Our life demands are overflowing and many people are feeling the strain. And this isn't just athletes. This is athletes, leaders, parents, employees. I think that we are collectively managing big change once again. Back in March 2020 or so, there was a big change of this collision of lives. And we went on and on and on about the importance of structure, routine, training, so that you could emerge stronger. And interestingly, now as we revert back to a new normal, back to some version of what it was like before the pandemic, we're in a very similar situation and change again. And it's not just war and inflation and gas prices and everything that's happening around us, but it's also our own personal lives. And how that shows up, what it looks like is really different for each of us. But the common thread undoubtedly exists. Some of the components that we hear a lot is, I now have to go back to the office. I've got to commute again. The kids' activities and sports are amplifying. I have to travel for work. My training load now doesn't fit into life, whatever it is. And change is hard. And what we're trying to create again is a new normal, our blended lives with a lot of competing demands. So what's happening? How are folks reacting? Well, they're reacting by sometimes pretending it ain't happening, or they're just leaning into hope. I've just got to get through this. Oh my God, I've got to survive. And so many people, that leads them to freaking out and desperation. How do I cut things out of life? And so many people are deciding to quit on themselves, stop their performance goals, thinking, unfortunately, naively, that by reducing structured training or skipping on sleep or giving up on really positive habits that can bolster health and performance, such as quality nutrition, that it's just going to give them mind space to be effective in the non-negotiables. And it doesn't happen. So I think it's really important that we dial in the united perspective. And I think the first thing I want to say to this is something that's important. You need to realize that you actually have a lot of control in this. You are actually empowered. You have a lot of power. Even at this time where it's really uncomfortable, you might be feeling the strain and even a little out of control, but you do actually have some control and power and you can navigate. Now, I'm going to keep today's answer a little bit shorter because this is a topic that deserves a whole bunch of consideration. And so we are going to dedicate all of next week's show to stress. But over the course of this time where it's really, really challenging, your best method is not to just survive, but to try and thrive. Really, really important. We want to try and thrive. So how do you do that? Well, we have to first redefine your relationship with the whole concept of stress. Many folks are struggling. It shows up really differently for each of us, but it's common. And we are all hammered with the same message. Stress is bad. It's harmful. It destroys us. And we're peppered with marketing of how to reduce stress, go and get a massage, whatever it might be. And so the truth is that Stress is more complex than that. It's more nuanced because, yes, unchecked and unmanaged, the accumulation of too much physiological or emotional strain can be really harmful. But perhaps paradoxically, 
it is exactly that strain, challenge, navigating adversity, that pressure, which is essential for in anything that you care about, for your body and your mind to grow, to evolve and develop. So strain and demand is really, really important. Okay, so we have that. Let's talk about stress. Stress is your reaction to a demand placed on your body. And you, you are an adaptation machine. Your body is designed to grow and develop from the strain placed on it. And there's a great model for this that's proven over years. And that's the journey of an athlete. Let's keep it really simple. By definition, training is a strain that is uncomfortable, but is exactly the pathway for you to achieve adaptation. So you get think fitter, stronger, more powerful. It's not comfortable. We all know that training is hard and challenging, but it's critical. And guess what? I'm going to dive into this next week. One's perspective and relationship with stress is hugely important on whether it ends up being something harmful or helpful. Research shows that your approach and mindset has a seismic impact, not just on your mindset globally as a whole, but also your physiology. If you view it as damaging and harmful, it leads to negative results. View it as important and essential for growth, and you have an opportunity at least to actually improve and increase performance because of it. So the last thing I will say, without giving away the whole of next week's show, is that I often get asked about the common mindsets or traits of high performers, elite athletes, CEOs, etc. And the obvious answers is they all have very similar aspects, you know, high commitment, work ethic, toughness, passion, coachability, etc. But the one that always sticks out to me of every high performance relationship is anchored around their relationship to adversity, failure, and strain, how they view stress. Interestingly, every high performer that I've ever worked with doesn't try to minimize or avoid stress. Instead, they lean into it. They don't like it. It's not comfortable, but they view it as a pathway to growth. They know it is how growth works. And so I realized that in this show, the Ask Me Anything, there isn't massive action from this answer, but I hope it's enough to tickle your fancy on it because next week I'm going to do a written article that I think will be really, really helpful. And we're also going to dedicate a whole show around some of the stories and case studies related to this and give the broader context around that topic of stress. So until then, fasten your seatbelt, know that you're not alone, understand that you are in control and I'll help you next week on it. And most importantly, don't give up on your performance journey because that is the very thing that is providing the ammo for you to conquer and thrive through this adversity and challenge. And we will get you there. We hear now from Richard, who lives in London, and it's a question about the efficacy of his daily bike commutes to his overall training schedule. Hi, Matt. This is Richard calling from your hometown, London. I'm a time-starved squaddy heading towards my second Ironman and have a 50-minute commute 
each way at least five times a week by bike. What's the best way to factor this in into the overall arc of my training? As although it's physical load, it's typically not particularly specific training due to the length, the traffic and everything else. I'm sure there are lots of bike or even run commuters out there that are also trying to tie that in with more structured and specific training. Thanks very much. All right, Richard, great question. Let's talk about training on this one. I think the best way to go about this is to first talk about training. And as I talked about in the last uh, answer, training is a strain that we apply to the body so that it can react to it and create adaptations. And I think it's important for us to appreciate that every day or every training session is not the same. So we're not looking for every session to be what we would label key. In fact, there's probably only two or maybe three days a week where you're really building training sessions with specificity to drive what we call the performance needle. These are highly specific, typically very challenging. And that challenge comes from either duration or intensity or a combination of both, which is very cruel, longer duration and high intensity. But they're really important. And they're the ones for any athlete, doesn't matter whether it's a runner or a triathlete or a cyclist, whatever it might be, they're the ones that we build the program around. Okay, great. So that's the really key and important sessions. And in those sessions, for an athlete to get the optimal yield from them, they should understand the purpose, they should execute as intended, they should be wholly present or focused in them so that they can really dial it in and extract all of the benefit from it. So that's where if you close your eyes and you think about what being a really dedicated athlete is, it's really in those sessions, no noise, no distraction, all in, immersive, great. Then in any athlete's life, there are the more supporting sessions. And those supporting sessions facilitate recovery, maybe preparation and readiness for an upcoming key session. There could be a technical element working on aspects of form or posture, and then some global resilience, so endurance-based sessions, both from a cardiovascular standpoint as well as a muscular standpoint. And those supporting sessions have a little bit more freedom to them. In fact, as a time-starved athlete, I really embrace and like athletes to view these supporting sessions as pretty flexible. They're the ones that maybe we scale down or reduce, both in terms of intensity or total duration, if your life is flowing and fatigue is there, et cetera. But I also think that it's a, those are really good sessions where we can be a little more flexible with being highly present. What I mean by that is that they want to act and I'm butchering it because it isn't true, as a bit of a meditation. In other words, a release from life, a little bit of me time. And I love to use the label soul-filling. They should be really fun, conversational, flexible. It's really joyous. And there's a, a really important good part of life. And that supporting type of training is really, really valuable. So you should be confident in knowing that there's a whole bunch of gain happening, but it's almost occurring at an imperceptible level. You certainly don't get the big validation of, whoa, new levels, et cetera, within that session, but there is a whole bunch of gain occurring. And so your commuting, Richard, fits into that category. And so the way that I would view it 
is across a few things. The first is use it as a relief, a little bit of a bridge in many ways from the work day to going home and life that's going to occur at home. It is genuinely a little bit of me time. I'm actually having this as a bridge. I'm going to do it for myself. I'm going to enjoy it. It's soul-filling. And I'm not under any real pressure to get stronger, fitter, more powerful, boost my FTP or all of the other noise. So it can be really easy, guilt-free, easy, because it's building general endurance. Okay, super. That's a good one. There's also within that commute a great opportunity for you to play, to actually improve your handling, your technical development, your skills. And when physiological stress is lower, it opens the door of opportunity. So I really encourage you to go and play on the bike and run because then you're going to transfer that into better form and riding on the tougher sessions. So what's my equivalent of this? Well, I don't have a bike commute, at least very often. Sometimes I get to do that. But what I do get to do is go for a run a few times a week. And I typically get to go and do it in the trails. And so when I do that, I run easy. I get up, sometimes start in the dark with a headlamp, and I listen to podcasts or an audio book. And I don't chase, I don't go hard. I don't finish tired. I finish energized and maybe a little bit more informed because I've got to go and listen to something and free out. It really is a bit of me time. And it's something where it gives me an opportunity to go and listen to a book or a podcast, come home a little informed. And that's something that I would not do at home. So I'm not suggesting that you should get your headphones on and block out the noise where you're commuting through London. That's probably a little dangerous. But I hope that perspective really helps. And our final question today comes from a Purple Patch Squatty named Matt, who has a question on bike cadence while racing. Hi, Matt. Matt Blackmore here from Evanston, Illinois. So question on cadence. Throughout the winter, we've worked on Purple Patch's secret sauce of end of range cadence. I've always raced at 90 to 95 RPM, but find I'm much stronger and more effective doing the Hell's Ditch kind of work at the lower end of cadence than those super fast cadence work so if that lower cadence is more of a natural strength does that mean i should race at a lower rpm say 80 to 85 than the 90 to 95 i've always targeted in the past thanks so much all right mr blackmore matt thank you great question uh let me provide some perspective here to yourself but also to the listeners that maybe are a little less in tuned with cadence globally and how we use it at purple patch so i i hope that this is very helpful Uh, The first thing I'll say is I think it's important for us to realize that riding cadence or your revolutions per minute, so your RPM, as you've heard it, is highly individual. That's the first thing. So you'll never catch me prescribing to a set cadence. You must be X, Y, and Z. That's the way that you should be racing, etc. Now, at Purple Patch, as you know, Matt, but we tend to train athletes at what you would call the end of your cadence ranges. So we call it end of range cadence and a quick, very quick tutorial for listeners. If you ride your bicycle outdoors, there's a range of cadence that most athletes tend to fit into. 
And at the lower end, it's about 65 revolutions per minute. So your pedals are turning around about 65 revolutions per minute. And that would be used into a very strong headwind or maybe going up a hill, etc. And on the fast end, it's 100, 105, 110 RPM. That's about the normal range that you would apply outside. And if you're just going along a flat road, the common perception is people tend to sit around 90 RPM, might be a little less, might be a little higher for people, but that's what we call our range. It's normal range. For a variety of reasons, we do some of our training sessions on the bike at the extreme ends of those ranges. So on the low end, we do some high torque, very low cadence work, 40 to 65 RPM. That's very, very challenging. And on the high end of it, we do work at 100, 110, 120, 30, 140 revolutions per minute, very, very fast. Now, the reason for each end of these ranges, we won't dig into too much today, but they all have a different role. Depending on the session, it can open up improved technical pedaling. It can improve your efficiency, uh, developing muscular endurance, what we call strength endurance, a great gateway to improve power potential and much, much more. And so there's a a very specific training role at these ends of ranges. But when you then go and apply your riding to outside, we have no anticipation or expectation of riders sticking to 110 RPM or 50 RPM. It's purely a training tool. No matter where your most effective pedaling is, 90% of your race is likely going to be right in that most effective range, your natural cadence. So if you were riding outside at a moderate to moderately strong effort, where would you naturally fall? So for many people, they think in their heads it's about 90 RPM. Okay. What we're doing with this training outside of the physiological and muscular adaptations is we're also educating athletes on developing a toolbox of different pedaling. And so when you go outside and you come up against a grade or a hill or you've got wind in your face, it's a useful and smart tool to shift into generally a lower cadence. On the flip side, if you've got the wind at your back or you've got a shallow grade downhill, you might have sea power drop a little bit lower, but you're going to shift to a more buttery and faster cadence. And then finally, if you want to vary the load, the postural load, you want to shift it up, shift the muscle group, you might go lower or higher, depending on when you're at. And so it becomes a toolbox. Good. So what that means is if you go and execute a race and we go and look at your power file after a race, the last thing that we would ever want to see is a constant cadence that is held throughout a race. That's really bad. That's monotony. Instead, what we look for is variance because then we can see that the cadence shifts as the athlete has managed the postural load, the environment, the terrain, muscle recruitment, etc. And the reason for that is that it provides your best speed return. Your bike splits go up. But on top of that, it also opens up the gateway to improve your running off the bike because we've got variance in recruitment patterns and postural load. And that tends to have a really, really good benefit. Great. Well, what about you, Mr. Blackmore, Matt? So we tend to see with athletes that adopt this end of range training 
that there is a stray towards slightly lower cadence. So if they come in and say, my self-selected cadence is 90 RPM over the course of months or maybe a season, they tend to self-select slightly lower cadence. The reason for that is they start to develop that toolbox and they're like, oh, I like the feeling of a little bit of tension on the chain. It becomes more normal. They feel the reduction of cardiovascular stress as you make efforts a little bit more muscular. And that's great. And so you shouldn't be afraid or worried if you tend to stray more towards 80 or 85 RPM. And so I think that that's a normal and anticipated reaction to the training stimulus. So don't be afraid of it. I'm also going to finally add that if we think about middle of the bell curve, most, and I'll double underline that, most triathletes tend to do better running off the bike when they adopt slightly lower cadence as a general rule. So the whole thing about you must be 90 to 95 RPM for you to be, quote, efficient as a bike rider is a complete myth. Some athletes do operate best there, but the longer the event, generally, and it's just generally, generally, the lower the cadence as a general rule. So over the course of an Ironman event, I've had athletes that have averaged 75, 77, 80 RPM. I would say the typical, the norm is 80 to 85. On the flip side, Chris Lieto, when he got second at the Hawaii Ironman, averaged 95 RPM. The key is that there are very few athletes that run really well on that average of 95 RPM. And so, and, and that's probably, I should add, probably due, due to the neurological cost of doing so. And so the short answer to it is it's a normal trend. Don't bring the hammer. Instead, bring the toolbox and really go on a journey to ensure that you understand how to best operate in different varying terrain and get the best run off the bike. I hope that helps. All right, guys, last thing I'll say, the next Ask Matt Anything, the first two we've done pretty general, pretty broad. We're going to narrow the focus. And so if you enjoy these episodes, next, next time we do one of these, it's going to anchor all about the run. We want to solve your running challenges. And so whether it's injuries, frustrations with the run, how to run off the bike, which you can start the journey by going and checking out this week's blog, your hate relationship with the have you running. You hear that people all the time saying, I just cannot run. I hate it. I'm not a runner. If you want to evolve that mindset and that approach, let us help you. You can ask me any question you like, and I will try to fix it. All you have to do is head to purplepatchfitness.com, go to the podcast page. You can either write your question there or, of course, how we love it, leave your voicemail. We'll filter through the best, the ones that we find are most appropriate, and then we'll have an episode dedicated to questions on running. In the meantime, fasten your seatbelt for next week's show. It's all about stress. I think you'll find it very, very useful. And I will say thank you very much for the great hosting Kerry, I thought it was great. It was a lot of fun. And to everyone else, stay healthy, enjoy the week, take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review the show. 
The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!